Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day 47 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge, first draft edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today, uh, we are at the Novel Incubator Writers Retreat um, in wonderful, in a wonderful kind of odd old house in Bourne, Massachusetts. And we're talking about feedback with two Novel Incubator alums, Mark Foster and Bob Fernandez. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Michelle. Good morning. Uh, Mark Foster is a novelist and short story writer who completed Grub Street's Novel Incubator. He is currently shopping and revising his first novel, Delhi 7. As a founding board member of Grub Street, he helped the organization develop over 10 years to become the premier nonprofit writing center in the United States. He currently also serves on the board of 826 Boston, where he has helped to catalyze new approaches to STEM writing in Boston public schools. When he's not writing fiction, um, he works in early stage biotech companies and does political work. So Mark is busy. Bob Foster is also a graduate of Bob Foster. Bob Fernandez is also we're, a graduate. We're like, we're like brothers. They're like we're brothers like, yeah. of the Novel Incubator program. <laughs> Bob is a ferocious, prolific writer. Uh, he worked in IT. He's worked through four novels uh, since starting the Novel Incubator program, as well as two agents. So he is very good at talking about feedback and what feedback to use and what feedback not to use. Okay, so I'm going to let these guys get going. And I'm going to start with Bob. Bob is also not normally an early morning riser. So the fact that I have him up this early is, is amazing. Um, so Bob, what do you think about feedback? How do you, when do you get it? How do you use it? Um, well, I think one of the most important questions is when should you solicit feedback? Yeah. Um, and I have my own opinions, which I will present as the way you should do it. Um, and if anyone wants to argue with me, they can, but they'd be wrong. Um, so I do not suggest looking for feedback after you've written the first draft. I just don't think that's the best approach. And I'm going to give you two reasons why. Um, one reason is if you write a first draft, you've got maybe a group of people, a writing group or friends who you're going to give it to to read. You've got them queued up perhaps, four or five people. Uh, you give them your first draft and they give you all kinds of feedback. And what has happened now is if you now later on want to um, solicit them again because you've written a third draft or a fourth draft, they've seen that first draft and they've got that in their head. And that's going to influence maybe bad and maybe a good way um, how they respond to a later draft. Yeah, because people get really stuck on that first draft. And they're um, actually my own mother, even after I published my book, she's like, what, what happened to that one character? And this was a character that I'd taken out like five years earlier. Um, so people get really stuck in the in the, in the um, first version and then they can't get off it. It's almost like they prefer that just because it was first. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And the other big reason for me is I like to think of myself. I know my story. I'm the writer and I know my story. If I've written a first draft, there's no reason for me to simply hand it off and say, here, what do you think? What do you think? What do I think? I need to read it again, read it again and fix the things that I know how to fix. Because yeah. if, if it's my story and I know how to tell it, I should be able to at least second draft, third draft, fourth draft, see things that need to be fixed before I then say, oh, here you go. So my the way I look at it, the way I think about it is I keep drafting until I get to the point where either A, I think it's freaking perfect, or more likely B, I can't see the problems. And at that point I say, friends help me out. 
And actually, that's probably one in the same, that you think it's perfect and you can't see the problems. Exactly. <laughs> right? Um, Mark, how about you? Because you have a different approach. Yeah, I'm a little bit on the other end of the spectrum, which is I see the, the even the drafting and revision process as a conversation between myself and my readers. And although in the drafting process, I think you can get carried away with super detailed feedback that slows you down and ties you down. I think I prefer for my readers to let me know if they have certain expectations about what is going to happen to the story or certain questions they have. And I, that doesn't mean that I'm, that that's going to dominate my thinking about how I draft the work, but I I keep those questions in mind because I want to know if, if a bunch of people have a question about where the story is going to go. I want to make sure that I'm, uh, responding to that. So reader setting up reader expectations and, and yet you're not overly influenced by that. So you're able to have that kind of distance. Yeah. Like Bob, I, I have a vision for where the story should go and what, the, what should happen to the characters, but I I'm interested in what readers um, have to say and what questions they have. Yeah. Good. Um, so we, we have Jesse says um, no, it's Anne who says, um, to Bob, that's that's many years alone with your draft. Is that okay for you? Well, it would be okay for me, but I tend to be a fast drafter. Um, so I don't start writing a story until I know exactly where it's going. Um, I know what happens in the last page before I start writing the first page. That's just me, which might mean it might be years in the thinking about stage. Um, before I actually start writing. But once I start writing, because I know where the story is going, a first draft for me on a, you know, 80,000 word novel might take me three to four months. I'm retired. So I've got plenty of time on my time on my hands. Yeah. And then I do fast drafts. Yeah. In between. Fast drafts of gorgeous writing. Um, And Jesse's writing, uh, asking, and this might be a good question for both of you, but for Mark, how many beta readers do you, do you search for? Yeah, I usually try to keep it limited when I'm drafting, uh, just a few. Uh, and then even when I get to a first draft, I think uh, I think you can get carried away with having, you know, 10 people read it, and then you're overwhelmed by feedback. Yeah. I also try to uh, look for beta readers that I that I think can put themselves into the, the goals of what I'm trying to do with a book. Uh, and I, I try to, conversely, try to avoid... Uh, working with readers that I think are going to have a certain doctrine about what the story should be about and yeah. impose more of their view. So the, the direct answer to the question, I look for maybe three, four, five beta readers. Right. How about you, Bob? Uh, well, I have a writer's writing group and it's a pretty big writing group. Yeah. So when I get to a point where I am ready for feedback, I typically send it to my writing group and we're talking, what, about 12, 13 people in that group. So it's a lot of feedback. And if you've never gotten feedback for a full novel it's tough so just be ready for that you're going to be assaulted with so many different ideas and thoughts and oh here's all the things that are wrong with your book that you've been writing all these drafts about so (laughs) just be ready for that it's tough but and if you're not tough Maybe you need another job, but <laughs> give it a try. Yeah. Um, and so we do warn people about that in the novel incubator because it's different than man- than uh, workshopping or getting feedback from a short story because that's a smaller part of your life. A novel can be someone's baby that they've been working on for years. So you're basically handing them your child and saying, tell me what you think <laughs> of my child. And they'll tell you it doesn't have arms or, you know, whatever horrible things that you can't see. Um, and I do think, so in terms of the numbers of people, 
Um, I oftentimes, I'll choose people that I know will see certain problems, certain things that I have weaknesses on. Um, and like what, one of my best friends, Karen Halil, she can be really hard on me because she'll just go through pages and just cross out pages. And she's like, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And I need that. I need that at a certain point. Um, and you also want to be careful that the group is large enough because if you, one person's feedback, one person's response really doesn't mean much um, because they can really sideline you and, and they might have particular biases. So if you're, in a, if you're getting feedback from a group, maybe four or five, you're really looking for, okay, it becomes a problem if at least two people in that group or even three people in that group um, have issue with it. If it's, if it's just a single voice, um, I'd question it a little bit. It can, can be kind of difficult, depending on, unless they, you think that they're a really, really good reader for you. Um, and, um, and another question, like, do you have uh, different people react to each draft? You kind of do. I mean, you have your writing group. Um, well, because of the fact that I wait until I'm really deep into the process, I, I typically will just go with my writer group. So they're going to give me feedback and I'll take it back and work it and work it and work it and work it until I think it's ready. And at that point, um, if I think I really want to get some more feedback, I will try and find different folks, folks who aren't in my writers group, who have not seen that book yet. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for 12 people, but if I can get three, four or five people to have another look um, at a late, late draft, then I'll do that. Right, right. And I just had a, a lucky chance to read one of Bob's most recent drafts. So that was fun. Um, and Mark, how about you? I mean, do you aim to have different people read each draft? Yeah, I try to balance uh, people who have already read the previous draft. And so hopefully they can tell me if there are severe problems that I hopefully have fixed in the revision to see whether they think uh, it's gone off in a, in a better direction and then always looking for fresh eyes on it. And as I get into further revisions, I'm also looking for additional subject matter um, readers or sensitivity readers. Uh, I've That's been a life-saving thing for me in, in my novel, novel Delhi 7, which is about uh, the protagonist is a modern Orthodox Jew. I've, I had written this scene around Friday night Shabbat dinner and services. And I thought, well, this is gonna be great. And I showed it to a woman who lives in the modern Orthodox community in Brookline where I live. And she just like, this is, she didn't use the word train wreck, but she, <laughs> um, she said, you know, your ordering is completely wrong, Mark, you know, you need to completely redo it. And so, and she just cut, you know, slashed it up. So those, those subject matter readers have often saved my life. Right, right. And I recently had a workshop for a novel this summer, and I knew the novel wasn't ready, but I'd already kind of set up the group to workshop it. And I'm glad I did because I had made a choice early on in the novel that took it in a direction that I shouldn't have gone. And uh, basically based off some feedback that I'd gotten from a really early reader and um, it helped me to correct course and it saved me a lot of time. So, so it depends on your personality. It depends on the particular book. Cause I think in each book I'd kind of do it a little bit differently. Um, I'd, I'd be careful of rushing towards feedback of constantly needing feedback right away. Um, that can really stunt you and, and really um, cut you off. Um, but again, follow your, um, who you are as a person. I also know people that avoid feedback for, man, I have a friend, he's written a novel. He's, he's worked on it for 10 years and he's never gotten feedback on it. And it's kind of like, you know, 
I won't say his name, but maybe you should try to get feedback. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe you're ready for some feedback or maybe it's a project for yourself. That's okay. Some other things to think about when you're, when you're looking at feedback. Um, a lot of writing workshops talk about responding to the writer's intentions so that the group is trying to put their own biases aside and to be like, okay, this, this writer is trying to write this kind of novel. Um, and this is particularly a problem that you'll see on like Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews. You'll have something like, well, I don't like historical novels, so I give this one star. So that's a, that's a problem because the intentions of the novel are that it's an historical novel. So you're not actually, you're not responding to it according to the intentions that the writer has put out. So it actually doesn't make a difference that you've given it a one star if you don't like historical novels, you are simply not the audience for that novel. Um, so, but intentions can go beyond what genre of novel it is. Like, I want this character to be problematic. Um, I want to say the certain thing. Um, this is particularly important in terms of if you're writing um, certain identities that might not be understood or, or marginalized, put out the, your intentions of what you do and don't wanna write. Um, we currently have a black writer who's writing about um, a novel that takes place at Howard University. And she really wanted to place it in a black centric environment because she wanted the novel to be more than just about race <laughs> um, and, and, and bigger and, and beyond that. So, so that was her choice, that was her intention. And we knew that early on and we were able to respond to it that way. The problem is um, lots of times in workshops, we're told, okay, respond to the writer's intentions, but we don't actually know their, their intentions and we're supposed to be able to pick up their intentions on the page. And that can be very, very dangerous. So you might want to, as you're submitting your work to others, write up, I have, I have my students write up an artist statement. What are your intentions for this draft? And also what kind of feedback have you already received? What changes have you already made? What changes have you already rejected? Um, giving readers that sort of guidance from the get-go can be really, really helpful. And then also guiding them by asking certain questions um, about the manuscript can be, can be really helpful. Um, have you guys ever had an issue with feedback that just went off the rails or, or, or just a bad, a, a bad experience? Yeah, I, I think my uh, uh, building on what you just said about uh, reader intent or author intention, I've had plenty of people critique my work who really just didn't seem to even be trying to put themselves into the goals of what I was trying to do. And I find yeah. that um, most difficult. And so I, I look carefully for people that I think are going to have that uh, flexibility, mental flexibility to get inside what I'm trying to do. And also building upon what you just said about uh, the, the, the writer asking for specific kind of feedback. I think that's super important. The more specific you can be uh, and exactly what you want, the more likely it is you're going to get something useful at the stage that you're working, whether it's a first draft or a subsequent draft. Yeah. Yeah. Readers that have their own intentions or really sharp biases and they you can't move them off that are going to be very, very unhelpful and actually very dangerous to the whole project. Um, that's really going to waylay you and... and, and um, yeah. A woman I, I worked with in a writing group, I, I wrote a novel with a very compressed timeline. It was about a, over about a week. And she kept coming back and saying, you know, you, this really needs to be a longer timeline. And I'm like, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not how I want to write the book, mm -hmm. you know? So help me, uh, ideally you want to find people who can help you achieve 
what you're you've set out to do in the book. Yeah, yeah. Bob, how about you? Any any rough experiences with feedback? Um, not really. Maybe once I did. Um, I, I think I got a, a later letter of feedback from someone, and I just read it, and I just was totally downcast after it. Oh my god, what the hell! But then I put it aside, set aside, forget about that for the now. And I read the next letter from another person. And that one just took me right back up again. Um, and I saw the possibility. So in the first one, I saw like everything was not worth working on. The second one, like, oh, here are all these possibilities that opened up. At, at, the, at the same time, sometimes you'll get a what seems at, on the surface like a really negative review on a piece of work. But then when you reread it and you sit with it, you can see components of what people are telling you that are actually really important. So I think another another lesson I've learned is not to um, overreact to feedback and also to, to sit with it a little bit and try to understand where that person is coming from. Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> Two of the, the worst kinds of feedback I've gotten was I, I had a great chance to work with the, the great writer Barry Hanna at the Swanee Writers Conference. And, and he told me, he said, do you want anyone else other than women to read your novel? <laughs> so it was the most sexist, nice, awful, awful. So I was completely put aback and I was so adoring of him because I thought he was just such a great writer. And um, it really flummoxed me. At the same time, it allowed me to think about what I was doing and to kind of come to the defense. Like, this is what I'm doing. These are the sorts of readers I'm looking looking for. Fuck you. Maybe they're they're all female readers. Maybe that's what I want. So also being being very focused on okay, this is my audience. This these are who I'm writing for, and this is very important too. Not everyone in the room is going to be your audience, and yet readers will oftentimes assume that they are your audience. And particularly a, a certain kind of reader, mainstream readers, readers that um, have oftentimes have more privilege in their lives, they assume that every book is for them. And we've sometimes had in writing workshops, I've, I've I had one writer say, well, I don't know why anyone would ever read this book. And he was indignant about it. And I thought, well, the book is just not for you. Um, so being cognizant of that, both as a reader, but as a writer, you know, you might get really bizarre, indignant feedback and you can just decide, well, they're, they're just not my audience. They're not the person I'm, that I'm writing for. And I also more recently got, um, some feedback and a, and a friend of mine and a dear reader and someone I trust, he says, I have zero interest in your protagonist. And I was like, oh, ow, that's, that's painful. <laughs> and I was really surprised. But what it did, I was kind of surprised. I think he was kind of tired <laughs> that day, actually. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put that that way because he's a, he's a very good teacher. Um, but it really kind of kicked me in the butt to really work hard on my protagonist in a way that I might have been able to kind of fudge around and, and made some excuses for. So it really, it really got to me, but then I was able to kind of come back and maybe because I'm a natural rebel and I, and I kind of am, am you know, fiercely willful. Um, but both of these situations, even though they knocked me off my horse, so to speak, um, I was able to use it. Um, and so try to think of it that way. And sometimes it would take years for, for feedback like that to kind of to kind of work for you. And actually Barry Hannah later at the end of his life, I think he was no longer drinking and he actually became very supportive. <laughs> he just couldn't drink anymore. Um, some other things to think about is, you know, when you're in a group, you have the right to interrupt. 
Um, the whole idea of the writer's box where the, the, the writer is supposed to be silent for the workshop or supposed to be silent for the feedback section session is just doesn't exist anymore. Um, that just is, is not important. So, so feel free to interrupt. However, if you're, if you're rece receiving feedback and you spend the whole time explaining your book to them, I've, I've been in workshops like that where the person oftentimes very talkative people, they, they are explaining their book to them and they're not actually also hearing what people are saying to them. So if you can try to find a balance, be open, be listening in the moment and you can reject the stuff later, but make sure that you're not talking over them. Make sure you're using the workshop as a, as a workshop or the feedback session as a, as a workshop. If you're unable to interrupt or unable to speak up for yourself, find someone else in the room that can do it for you because some people also have a really hard time advocating for themselves as well. Yeah, if you're always coming out swinging as the author, yeah. the 30 seconds into a critique, it's not gonna help anybody because you're not even listening to what the person's saying. Yeah. And then conversely, if you're if you're providing feedback to people, uh, I also think it's not super productive to kind of hammer a, a point home and sort of be didactic, like make your point and then move on. Mm -hmm. um, another thing to think about is you might want to at the beginning of a feedback session, go around the room and ask the readers what their reading biases are. So do they read fantasy? Do they read historical fiction? Do they like plotted fiction? Do they read for language? Do they read for character? Do they hate stories about horses? Do they love stories about horses? Like that can actually influence, you, you'll send a book to an agent. I've, I've known agents that have rejected um, novels because they're like, well, I, I, I can't deal with books about fire. <laughs> and, and it's just, it has nothing to do with the actual book. It's, it's a weird bias. So you can actually go around and ask people for their biases. And I think it's also kind of puts people back and, they, and, and it allows them to realize, oh, I have biases. I have preferences. And that might alter um, my response to this book. I see Jesse's question about yeah. uh, consultants or book doctors. Do we want to yeah. address that? Yeah. I recently sent a, a manuscript to a consultant who I knew was not only a very good writer, but she also had expertise in dealing with um, characters that have sort of religious concerns. And I found that um, super helpful. The trick is finding the right resource. And I found right. mine off the Grub Street consultant list. Right. Um, I found that was great. Yeah, yeah. Bob, how about you? I mean, how do you... So the question from Jesse is, what order... Um, of workshopping, beta readers, and then the book doctor, or, I mean. Well, I've never dealt with, with hiring a book doctor yeah. um, so far, but I would assume that that's got to be something late, late, late in the process. Right. Once you're really comfortable with, with what you've got, yeah. because if you're paying someone to look at it, you want to do that once for one thing. Um, and just, you want to give them something that's really good. Yeah. And particularly I've found for novels, you really want to look around and try to get um, you know, um, recommendations for people. Because what I have found is that even very, very good readers and very smart people have a hard time. They'll just pick at little things in your novel. And it's instead of kind of big picture things that they, they really need to be looking for. And that can sometimes just not be as helpful. They're not, they're not looking at the, the, the full picture and, um, and they'll be like, well, on page 36, I was confused about this. That's, that's probably not going to be as helpful to you because sometimes you need much bigger picture um, stuff. Um, Doriana has a good question. So we talk about, well, you need to find readers that do this and you need to find readers that will work with your own intentions. 
How do you find those people? Um, I have a writers group, a writing group, which is a really good collection of folks who have different biases, probably. I don't usually think about that. Um, I don't talk to them. I ask them about that. I just hand the book over and get the feedback. Yeah. So then now it's up to me to look at all the feedback, read it, analyze it and decide. Maybe there are biases that I can see that maybe I can see that the, someone just didn't get my book. And that's up to me at that point to decide, do I use this feedback or do I cross this yeah. either person out or these particular points that they're trying to make out? And of course, that gets to um, one of my favorite things about feedback is in what I think is important, especially if you've never gotten big bunch of feedback at once is you need a process. I think you need a process in order to handle it and control it. So it doesn't overwhelm you. Yeah. Um, and so what I, I came up with a process that works for me very well. I take all the feedback, whether I've gotten written feedback, whether I've taken notes during a workshop, whether I've recorded the workshop and I produce what I call my problem solution document. Um, it's, I just open a word document, I put a table in there with three columns, First column is problem. The second column is who reported it. And the third column is solution. And I start going through those notes and I try to do it very, very quickly. And I actually create two tables. The second one is called the maybe table. So right. I look at feedback and I look at the first thing that Michelle says and it's, oh, that's a good suggestion. I, I think I want to deal with that. I'll put it in that problem column, put Michelle's name. And if I have an idea, uh, even raw ideas on how to solve it, I'll put something in the solution column. Um, if I don't, it's left blank for now. And I just keep going through the feedback. If I hit, if I hit a line that's like, no, absolutely not. I just ignore it. It's gone. Don't even think about it. If anything gives me pause, I'm no, I don't want to take a lot of time at this point and think about whether I'm going to do it or not. It goes down to my maybe column. And then I can look at that later. So I can get this revision document done in a matter of sometimes a day or two days, yeah. at least the base level of it, maybe not the solutions, but now I've got my list. I've got, this is what I need to address going forward. Yeah. And I think finding a process like that can really help, especially when you get a ton of feedback. Yeah. Um, Mark, how long do you, when you get feedback, how long do you wait before you kind of go back in? Well, one thing you've stressed in the past and other uh, excellent instructors have stressed in the past is that you need to let it sit for a while before you go back and yeah. try to revise. And another thing you've stressed in the past is when you're working on a revision, don't try to solve 27 problems at once. Focus down on a few areas that you think are really critical. And I, I found that uh, super helpful. Uh, and, and back to the question about selecting readers, I also look for a mix of people who are active writers and people who are not active writers. Yeah. In other words, but people who are avid readers who I think are reading material that's in the same zone because I they to me are uh, really represent the, the ultimate market for what I'm for what I'm writing. Yeah, laymen are really important. Um, and then also someone else is asking, again, how do you find these people? So, um, you know, taking classes, there are a number of great uh, writing centers around the country and around the world. And and one good thing about the terrible pandemic is that a lot of them are running online classes. So if you can find a place and take a class that's, that's and then you can get to know people's feedback style and the people that you gel with. And then from those classes, oftentimes then people can continue as a writing group. So it's, it's a great kind of resource to, to find uh, people um, because you do have to be careful like that. And once you kind of enter one of those communities, then it just keeps rippling out from there, I think. Um, Bob, how about you? I mean, do 
do you wait before you dive into your process? Do you sit a little bit or do you go right in? I really don't. I wait maybe a day yeah. because typically workshops happen at night for whatever reason for my writing. We work, we meet at night. So I get the feedback. And of course I don't sleep that night because I've heard all the stuff that people have said and it's all bouncing around in my head. Um, but typically the next day I'll just start making my, my revision document. I'm not solving problems necessarily at that point. I'm not going into the, the uh, manuscript and fixing things, but I'm putting it all on paper, all the things that I think I want to want to uh, think about. Um, and I might take time after that to mull over things. Um, but I really, I tend to, I just want to jump, jump in and fix stuff. So yeah. That's yeah. Me. That's me. Yeah. I always advocate for people to take a break and then, then I don't do it. <laughs> um, so someone else is also asking about how do you go about protecting your intellectual property or do you even do that? And I, I don't, um, I mean that, that would be a damn lucky problem to have if you have a book so brilliant, so individual, so unusual <laughs> that you have to copyright it um, ahead of time. And so it's just, I really would not worry about that. Um, there's so many stories and so many different ways of telling a story that really you, only you can tell the story the way you're telling it. Um, and uh, so it's just, it's not something I've actually even heard people have a problem with um, in terms of feedback. Um, so, so I would try to take that, that pressure or that worry off your shoulders. And I wanna mention one more thing in getting feedback and giving feedback is this idea of the implied author. Always remember that what people are responding to is an idea of you that they're getting from the page. And that's an implied author. That's the, that's the feeling of who they think you are based on what they read. And that is not you. Um, and this I think can be helpful. We dealt with in a most recent class, one of our writers had a really hard time with how another writer was representing someone of her race, um, someone of the, the, the um, other writers race. And, and so I talked to her about this because that stuff is very, very, very important to voice and very important to get out. So the writer that had made some, some mistakes with representing this, this character of race, she could say, okay, this person is, is um, responding to what I have on the page and is reacting even fiercely, even angrily to what I have on the page um, and the implied author that she is seeing, but that might not necessarily be me. It might, you might have racist stuff on the page and you might be a complete asshole. Um, you might also have um, very sweet stuff on the page and you might still be a complete asshole. So you can never quite tell. And I also think this idea of the implied author helps people when they're responding to work and they're like, well, I don't want to hurt this author, but they're saying something awful in this book, or they're saying something really hurtful in this book. We remember that you can say, you can even talk to them. Like I'm responding to what's in the text and not to who I think you are. Um, and I think that just might open up conversations that it's always about the text and the implied author and not, not necessarily, or shouldn't be a, a personal attack. It can be it just, it's feeding off, um, again, what's on the page. And that might help you take feedback like that that can be otherwise difficult to digest and also give feedback when you're worried about hurting people's feelings, but you think a particular approach to a subject needs to be rethought or, or talked about. So, okay, I'm gonna end there because we're at a writing retreat. We actually need to write, okay? Yes, what, are you, what are you working on during the retreat? Oh getting... my goodness, I don't know. I can't even describe the novel, but essentially <laughs> um, 
I'm, I'm revising. You're revising. Yes, revising. he's in revision. I love revising. Yes. You, well, you've got your list, and now you're list. and now you're back in. Mark, how about I'm you? I'm working through the murky middle of my new novel. Exactly. So, and it's and it's murky. It's murky. It's murky. Yeah. And I'm trying to save my protagonist that this particular reader had zero interest in. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. So tomorrow we're going to talk about keeping the faith, like staying in your chair. You know, if you've got knocked off the uh, the whole process with getting some bad feedback, how do you come back? Uh, so we'll have two more uh, writers from the retreat with us. And then Meta Wagner, who talks about this sort of thing, like staying in the creative mode and, and keep going. She does it professionally. We'll have her on on Monday. And then we'll end on November 22nd with um, how do you know your book is done with Casey LeBlanc. And that's an impossible question. So if you support what we're doing, please share, follow, and rate the 7 a.m. Novelist podcast. You can find it on Substack or other podcast platforms. And you can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. And also on that Substack page, if you join and subscribe, you can find other ways to join our conversation and respond to what's on that page. Okay, everyone get to your desk. Thank you very much and have a brilliant Saturday. Thank you. Oh.